0: We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Levovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com.
1: To learn how to travel slower is to also learn how to travel differently. Go places locally, use cooking and restaurants as a way of traveling, just be more conscious when we actually do travel. And I I think that that also leads to richer
2: experiences. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Alicia Kennedy is a writer and academic living in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and behind one of my favorite newsletters. On this great episode, we talk about Alicia's recent work and what she is reading, as well as we dive back into her great career at New York Magazine, The Village Voice, and some of the writing she has done here at Taste. We also dive into the course of food travel writing that she just wrapped up, and we talk about the guilt of not reading enough. Lastly, Alicia and I share a love for Monocle, And the Monocle Monoculture. That's a magazine. We both love it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Alicia Kennedy, welcome to the Taste Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Oh, it's so good to see you. I feel like it's been four and a half years, five years since I've seen your face. Probably. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So you live in San Juan and we'll get into your life there and and your newsletter, which is just such an essential read. I love it. I read it every day. The reason you're here is because I read that you were coming to New York this past Monday and here you are now. But first, like you're back in like your hometown. What's what are you eating right now?
1: In Patchogue, New York, on Long Island, I am always eating oysters, frankly, um, at Catch Oyster Bar. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's where I go. South Shore Dive in Sayville, great spot. Um, I am, you know, a creature of habit when I come home. Yeah. And also Del Fiore, the pizza place, is my go-to. So I'm, I am kind of rotate between those three spots Yeah, I'm home.
2: Yeah. Is there any food group that you're not getting in San Juan that you're, like, running right to in New York?
1: Absolutely Chinese food. So, uh, and I have a plan for this weekend. We, so there, there's a lot of really, really good Chinese food that's cropped up around Stony Brook University. And so my aunt lives in Setauket. So Mm. when we go hang out with my aunt, we'll like get a nice, I don't know, Gewurztraminer and go order a ton of Chinese food. (laughs) Oh, that's
2: such a good pairing. Oh my God. That's heaven. Well, I wanted to talk to you about your newsletter hosted on Substack. You know, every week or so, I try to read it every Monday. It's like a nice tradition of mine. I just think... It's so, uh, thoughtful. It's, it it covers just your personal life. It covers the world of food. It covers, um, a lot of food politics, plant-based eating, et cetera, et cetera. How has this changed? This like newsletter that lands in the inbox every Monday morning. How has it changed your interaction with, with, with readers?
1: Oof, it's so great because I actually know who my readers are now, I guess, to some extent, not not to a, you know, I can't know 27,000 people, unfortunately, um, or fortunately.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Wow, but good can, number there.
1: I can know a lot of them. And so it's been really cool to actually understand who those folks are, what they want, what they are interested in. Obviously, it really doesn't change what I do because if it changed what I do, then it wouldn't be what it is. You Mm -hmm. know, it wouldn't be the newsletter that it is for me, which is basically just, the reason it's called From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy is that it's whatever I feel like writing about. (laughs)
2: But it's also like in a very structured form. Like you kind of hit the same word word count. Sometimes you go a little longer, you've got your great reading list at the end, you've got like what you're up to and it's, it's very, like, very editorly, Editorly, I don't know if I made up that word, because like, you are a former editor, <laughs> yes. so you know how to edit stuff.
1: Yeah, and I th- I talk about this all the time with folks where, you know, it's uh, the reason I can be so consistent, I think, is that I've just done this job for so long before I started the newsletter. Like, I, I worked at New York Magazine. I worked at Edible. I worked at, did some time at Food & Wine. I, like, you know, used to write for The Village Voice. Like, there's so much structure already built into how I've worked for the last, you know, however many years almost 15 years so it's like I can't kind of you know escape that and so it makes it a lot easier to do this kind of work because I I already have that I those ideas of how to create structure
2: what's life like in San Juan living there I mean it must really affect all aspects of your life but of course the way you you write and you're not New York center anymore you're based there what's that like
1: it actually I think has been a really great you know, differentiating factor, I guess, for my perspective in food because one, it's changed my perspective on food from going from being someone living in Brooklyn yeah. who you know ate out a lot um, and cooked, of course, but yeah. not like to the extent that I do now. Um, you know, understanding you know food access when you're on an island is very different. Um, the produce is different, of course. The seasons are different. Um, the seasons are different in ways that are good. Mm-hmm. You know, we have really beautiful tomatoes all year. We have yeah. really nice greens most of the year um, i have you know the really short guava season the really nice Mm. starfruit season it's like there's all these really beautiful micro seasons that we have Um, but then at the same time you know it's it's difficult because you know there aren't as many small farmers as there should be i think um there isn't enough support for local farming yeah. and agriculture. You know, I just read a report from the USDA that, you know, since Hurricane Maria, I think it's at 85 percent imported food to Puerto Rico when this is a place that has such fertile land, so much mm-hmm. an agricultural knowledge. And there's
2: space on the island and to farm, right? And there is space, right? yes. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, if you talk to any... Farmer, they're going to, they're going to tell you off the record that um, most of the best farmland is in the south, in a, in an area called Juan Diaz, and it's kind of taken over by agribusiness for kind of uh, experimental purposes, let's wow. say, what or does that for mean, exactly? genetically modified oh, I I- ingredients, um, and so there is so much, you know, p- politics that you really understand on a day-to-day level and how it impacts food access and how it impacts food availability. And so that, of course, changes my perspective on food um, because I'm not coming at it from—I mean, obviously, when I lived in New York, I was writing for Edible Brooklyn or Edible Manhattan, mm-hmm. and we were talking about these issues, and we're, you're, we're really always, you know, super connected to farming and urban ag or whatever. But it's just on a whole new level when you actually see— how much it affects what you eat every day yeah because
2: living on an island exactly avoid that topic exactly. at all now Let's talk about the plant-based restaurants of Puerto Rico because you've written about this and you've clearly educated a lot of us about how Puerto Rico is a real bastion for this kind of ethic. But why? That's a big question. Like, (laughs) How did Puerto Rico become a place where plant-based diet is is actually widely embraced? I was there in January and I was there in Cone and there were like three cafes doing plant-based and I was like, wow, this is really terrific.
1: Well, it's funny. I have a friend who's a chef and we were chatting over dinner recently and he was like, it makes the most sense to have plant-based food here. Like that's what grows the most is, is the plants. Um, and so yeah. when we're talking about, I think that there's a big there's a perspective of Puerto Rican food and cuisine from outside that sees just kind of lechon and, mm-hmm. you know, and it sees the pork and everything. And that's a real thing. There are yeah. places you go and there's pork and everything. But um beyond that, you know, the produce is so good. And it is like And if you go back to how indigenous people ate, it was root vegetables. It was seafood. It wasn't pork that was brought by the Spaniards. So a lot of the um, focus on animal products and, Mm -hmm. you know, and there is a really cool dairy culture, goats, cows, a lot of local um, goat cheese. um, There's a really uh, great local cheesemaker called Vaca Negra that has cows and they're based Mm -hmm. out of Atillo. Um, but when you get down to it, like what is really from Puerto Rico, from the archipelago are the root vegetables, are the fruits, are the seafood. And so, um, it's actually makes it so much easier to do plant-based than one might think.
2: Yeah. No, it's actually well said. And thanks for uh, articulating that because if you subscribe to your newsletter, uh, the paid tier, you're getting recipes most weeks. Now I want to know from your own home kitchen, are there some Puerto Rican dishes or Puerto Rican products that you've really kind of, like, embraced as a resident and now as a recipe developer there?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, Carambola, which is starfruit, is I one love starfruit. Exactly. And it's my really favorites. not
2: great in, in, like the, in, like, New York. You can't <laughs> no. find great starfruit here.
1: <laughs> but it's been a beautiful replacement for apples in like, a tartatine. And so, like, wow. there's you know so much that and i love to use guava when it's in season make guava barbecue sauce um i did a recipe for mushroom pinchos with with guava barbecue sauce um all the fruit i think is the is really the big thing for me i've always loved tropical fruit more than anything and now i kind of get to experience it in such a like exciting way yeah,
2: a real way a real way it's not part of like a season or even like a section of the grocery store right yeah.
1: it's just yeah every week i go to the farmer's market and i'm like what is this and you know acerola has become one of my favorite fruits this is like a west indian caribbean cherry um ketumbia, which is a local ah. cranberry which yeah. is really cool um There is just so much diversity. The oranges are amazing. Um, Oh,
2: no doubt. Yes. Oranges. uh (laughs) Yeah, amazing, amazing.
1: Yeah, as well as the, the variety of bananas has been really fun. Yeah. Do you surf? No, I don't surf. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an outdoorsy person.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, You're like a New Yorker. Like you grew up, yeah. Well, you grew up on Long Island. So I grew up right. on Long Island. Some I'm surfing there, but you, you're a city bug. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about a course you just taught for Boston University's Masters of Gastronomy program. It was about culinary tourism, and readers of your newsletter will will recognize that you were Doing versions of your lectures in the newsletter, and I just wanted to get your your take. I know that we can't really cover the whole unit in mm-hmm. one podcast, but I'd like to hear why this topic. If you're going to teach anything, um, I'm sure you had a really nice opportunity to teach anything. Why culinary tourism?
1: Well, I didn't have a really nice opportunity ah, to teach anything. I was just asked to teach culinary tourism. Well,
2: that <laughs> must have been like okay.
1: I said sure. I mean, it was an op- It's something that I didn't realize until I was doing the research and was deeper into the research, that is something that has touched, you know, a lot of my work over the years. Um, you know, I've written about uh, tropical cocktails and like the ways in which, you know, tiki took aesthetics from Polynesia, mm-hmm. but it took flavors from the Caribbean, blah, blah, blah. Like there's like a lot of things that I've written about that already sort of touched on these ideas that I was able to really dive into in a real way with the with the class, which was exciting. And I also got to articulate a lot of things that, like, I had thought about but hadn't been given the opportunity to, you know, really research. And so, you know, starting with Lucy M. Long's Culinary Tourism from, I think, 1998 and then Lisa Helke's Exotic Appetites and then going from there to, like, I really wanted to include Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place Mm -hmm. because I think that's so essential and Derek Walcott's – 1992 Nobel lecture which is about the way people think of the Caribbean from outside and so it's just there's so much richness there so I really decided to teach the class because they were coming to Puerto Rico and they came and spent spring break in Puerto Rico I wanted to teach the class uh while centering the Caribbean because the Caribbean is the most tourism-dependent region in the world. Really and, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, to, it, it, to talk yeah. about why that is. And so we really hmm. kind of, we went a lot of places in the class, but we really focused on the idea of how the Caribbeans, through colonialism, went from a plantation economy to a paradise economy built hmm. on tourism.
2: Now, I have to ask then, with that, with your deep research, and, and also just like, R- referring to the, the the work of past and the the literature that's been written about it from a listener point of view i think the first question that pops to mind is how the fuck do we how we a be- how do we become a better culinary tourist right meaning like traveling for food it's like we talk about it and we celebrate it and we write magazine articles about it and we taste we write about it and we like we love like origin it's like big part of um the w- why we travel but then there's like the the main goal is like being a good tourist I think we all are righteous in that way yeah now Kansas in one soundbite but like how do we think about that
1: well I always explain it and I've explained it to my students because of course they had this kind of moment of like there is no way for me to leave <laughs> and be a good person um I explain it as and I think that it, it's a really holistic way of thinking about it because, you know, you, you also want to think about how much do I travel? How much travel is sustainable? Um, mm. Why am I going somewhere? What is it I really want to engage with in this place? And so I think that when travel has become something that people do just to do it, I think. It's become a way of kind of collecting experiences, places, collecting photos for social media. It's literally
2: collecting your grid and your highlights.
1: And collecting Google Map places so that, like, you know— I see it so much where one person goes on a vacation and then someone says, oh, I'm going there. Can you send me your recommendations? And so it's just tourist to tourist sharing the same recommendations over and over again. And that has a huge impact on a, on a place. Um, but the way I explain this to folks is that I think that we need to travel less, travel slower, um, wow. do the research and the reading before we go, have a real – political, economic, demographic context of the place we're going into and just be aware of who we are in relation to that and try and do our best in that
2: scenario. Each of these are all really great points and you really were concise about that. One thing that just really resonated with me is travel slower. Yeah. Now, how does one travel slower and actually have a vacation? And because you're like, you're leaving your job, yeah. you're spending thousands of dollars to be there. You're likely staying in places that you feel like are responsible, maybe not. How do you travel slower?
1: I think that you have to—I mean, this is difficult to say because we're in a U.S. context where no one is getting the— a, yeah. A decent amount of vacation. ever. Right. So the idea, I suppose, and this comes into culinary tourism, too. And this is also in um, Lucy M. Long's definition of culinary tourism is you can explore foodways without going anywhere Too there. And I, I did a class and a lecture on this, too, which is to try and see where you live or where you come from with fresh eyes. And how can you explain it to someone from outside? And mm. how does that increase your own appreciation or understanding of where you come from? And then also how do you cook and explore new food ways? And how does that enable you to kind of satisfy this bug and this curiosity that we all have to experience new places and new foods? Um, and, you know, it it comes with a lot of different a lot of different uh, understandings of how to do consumption, I guess. Yeah, that's
2: such a great word. I was thinking the same thing. I know. Consuming, because like you you want to have like the double-double dinner or whatever bang-bang you call it when you're on vacation, but it's contradictory to what you're saying.
1: Exactly. So I think that people, you know, to learn how to travel slower is to also learn how to travel differently and to learn how to... Go places locally, uh, use cooking and restaurants as a way of traveling, and to just be more conscious when we actually do travel. And I I think that that also leads to richer experiences.
2: Absolutely, it, it makes me also think that it like takes some of the stress out of like having to do it all yeah. that we put on ourselves. If you have a real game plan, and we're entering the real travel season in North America, I mean we're entering summer. Now, I just feel like what you've just said is really resonating. Like, if you travel slower, you're maybe not going to have to have that, like, pang of anxiety, like, am I getting it all?
1: Yeah, because there's always another opportunity to have that perspective shift, I think. Yeah. You know, it's a, you can do that at home
2: as well. Let's talk about publishing again. I, I just want to go back to your newsletter. And, and, like, when did you know it was, like, hitting? Because, like, you, like— it like you you're a seasoned journalist fifteen years and but this newsletter was different. And like you've got twenty-seven thousand subscribers now. Not like that's many people aim to have two thousand subscribers.
1: Yeah. So I don't know that I ever knew it was hitting. I don't I still don't know that I know that it's hitting. I think the fact of being literally on a Caribbean island in a pandemic means that I mm-hmm. like couldn't, you know, kind of physically internalize yeah. what that meant. Um and so it's been, you know, really interesting and and cool, and it obviously was a big change. I think the thing that enabled me to do the newsletter was that I thought that my food writing career was probably over. And no then, way! Let's yeah, one hundred percent. No, I because I was. Coming into 2020, like I had a contributing editor job and a contributing writer job, and both of them were going away because everyone kind of saw this, whether it was an economic crisis or the pandemic crisis kind of coming down the the highway. And so I was like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I was just started. I had started the newsletter right before lockdown. And I had thought, like, oh, this will be a way to kind of keep editors up on what I'm doing and mm-hmm. keep my writing muscles going, et cetera, et cetera, but I'm going to have to figure out something else to do with my life. Um, and that was kind of fine with me. I, I You know, things change and yeah. ebb and flow throughout
2: life. And yeah, you moved. I mean, it was a big life exactly. change, and maybe it was going to dovetail with a career change. Yeah, exactly. Get it, get yeah,
1: it. yeah. And so I, I just um, decided to write this newsletter, and then I think the first piece I wrote where I realized that, like, I could do this with my voice and, and say things I wanted to say that other that mm-hmm. writing for publications wouldn't allow me to write was I wrote about like the steak episode of Ugly Delicious. <laughs> and um, and that was, you know, a really good opening yeah. to to be like, OK, cool, like I can just say whatever I want,
2: but it was like an editor's instinct, a killer instinct, really, to like take something in the zeitgeist and like turn it upside down and yeah. be critical of it. And and I think if your writing is that, I mean, you really you aren't always writing about the zeitgeist, but you often do like dip into the zeitgeist. Cool.
1: Yeah, I try.
2: <laughs> what else I also like about your writing is your bibliographies, and and really, you're you're a clear bibliophile, and I cannot like not ask you about that. Being in Peng Random House, where we're recording and working here. Um, like what you your reading lists are so intense in the best way possible. Like they're really, really rich. And this is like dumb question. Like, what are you reading? But like, basically I want to go there because I feel like you're just a wealth of information. I'm going to try to link to some of the bibliography in our show notes, but like who are you reading right now?
1: I'm always reading Kate Zambrino, whose new book, yeah. The Lightroom, is coming out this summer. I think it's it's funny because a lot of what I read isn't about food at all. I do read about food, of course, but I uh, I think that the, the reason I'm a writer is that I love other kinds of writing. Um, I'm reading Eileen Miles, A Working Life, the new poetry collection. I'm in Kafka's diaries. Um, what is that? He, it's a new translation of his diaries. Um, and so... That's actually a really exciting new look at Kafka um, because the version of the diaries we had had in English before was uh, kind of edited by Max Broad, which was his his close friend who is the one who didn't burn his papers when that's what he requested.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a, a, not a trusted source.
1: Not a trusted source. So now we're getting like the full uh, Kafka unleashed. Um, and so, yeah, um, yeah I, I'm just... Right now, I'm dipping around a lot. I'm reading Janet Malcolm. Um, I just wow. re I read uh, forty one False Starts, uh, essays on writers and artists. i'm I'm right I'm like researching a piece on an essay for the newsletter on like the role of the visual in the like daily creative life of a writer. So, like writers who take photos, writers who write about artists, et cetera. So like, obviously, this doesn't have a lot to do with food.
2: <laughs> no, but that's why we like it. We mean me, but also many others, because we certainly wanna dip into your your commentary on food world and food media and, and all that, but also it's rich. I mean it's it's super textured. So and the topics you cover typically are not food centric. Right. I love that. What's your reading routine then? Because to me, it's like, damn, you're like reading a lot.
1: Well, I'm really lucky in that my newsletter is, you know, an anchor job for me. So I'm doing assignments, obviously. I have a book coming out. Like I have a lot of things going on, but at the core of it, my job is to write these essays every week. And so I do dedicate like a lot of morning time to reading and writing. And and so- And I'm always a I'm a fast reader just because I used to be a copy editor. Yeah. So like I and I think I try and say that all the time because I, I feel like people have a lot of guilt about not reading like in quote unquote enough, which yeah. is like not a
2: thing. Well, um, you never you never pose like that question about like, are you reading as much as me? I
1: never do. I, I don't think of reading as something quantifiable. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think and I tried to do this actually in my class with my students where it's like learning isn't something you quantify. And obviously I have to give them a grade. But um, <laughs> I'm always like what the, the measure of learning is how how you change going forward.
2: Are you a firm but fair grader? Or are you a tough grader? Oh,
1: no, no. I'm a very easy grader, frankly.
2: Truly, that would be my <laughs> point of view. If I was ever a professor, I've definitely graded some things. Oh, I would be so easy. You have to be an easy grader.
1: I Well, I mean, if someone is completely off base, of course, they're, it's, they're, something is going to be, the grade's going to be lowered. But at the same time, you know, we're studying, we're talking about gastronomy. This is food studies. I'm not saying it's not a serious subject, but it also is such a subjective subject. Yeah. And it's also, you know, just really wanting to privilege what the students are bringing to the table and what they want to get out of it, you know.
2: Now, you're clearly a journalist, but you have a foot firmly planted in academia. And I have to ask you, is there like a dream course or in a dream institution, a pairing that you would, will go food, pairing that you'd like to maybe actualize by saying it on a podcast?
1: I would love to just teach food writing, frankly. Like I think that I would just love to teach food writing with an eye towards cultural criticism because I think that that's what's needed more in food writing is, is a real, like, I don't know, context, uh, Mm -hmm. history, um, not a meanness. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why meanness is the first thing that came up, but like (laughs) just a critical eye, you know, and, and bringing in other cultural forms to the discussion of food. I think that, I think that food has been siloed in its own world for too long. And I think that it's time to, Open it up.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a real shame that we have to like keep referring to Jonathan Gold as like the Pulitzer Prize-winning, you know, food writer. He's like the only—is he the only food? Like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> um, because, but there's like this weird marketing about food writing in the in the larger context of letters that we are in this world of like only writing about like Bordignon style, like adventure and yes. then travel and then of course cooking. Yes. But what you've done is you broken the form and brought in real intellectual. It's like real intellectual rigor to food writing, and it's super appreciated.
1: Well, I think a lot of folks have done the—like, you know, um, Soleil Ho and Mayuk's, Mayuk's book was my favorite book of the last few years, and, and um, Stephen Satterfield, of course. Um, I think that, you know, it's been a real movement to try to break food out of mm-hmm. its its consumptive— uh, straight jacket,
2: yeah, <laughs> but also we're super underfunded too. So like exactly. that's the thing that's like the paradigm, right? That we have to get clicks or we have to get whatever. Yeah. And I mean, you've you've created a model that that seems to work for you, which is great. I hope but I'm one
1: person. I wish that if I if I could have. Money, I would be publishing, you know, publishing other people too. But yeah, where's yeah. the money for that? So you're talking <laughs> about
2: Stephen. Are there other publications that you're reading that we should, that you want to shout out? Well,
1: of course, Vittles yeah. out of the UK. Absolutely. Jonathan uh, Nunn. Yep. He is um absolutely wonderful. Yep. Andrea Aliceda, who just announced, you know, she's doing a plant based Mexican. Um, cooking book ria el cario who is also doing Mm -hmm. filipino plant-based cooking um these folks have Substacks as well um ashley rodriguez from boss barista um you know there's so much good stuff happening independently um i wish that there needs to be a way for Substack to kind of bring us together and, like, allow (laughs) people to kind of get the food bundle or something like that. Well,
2: Chris Best, the co-founder of of Substack, has been doing a lot of interviews, it seems, about bundling. It seems like it's a real future. for the It's the thing that
1: needs to happen, because I think that people need to buy the food, like, to support all of these people, like, I know that I'm getting a lot of support, like, Andrew Jenjigian, Wordloaf, getting a lot of support, but, you know, the, the people who haven't had the length the careers that we've had you know coming up like you want to kind of help pull them up but at the same time we're not in a place to you know kind of do that mm-hmm. so how do we do that and i think that yeah a way of bundling food newsletters together would be really cool how is
2: there like a price that works i know it's like very challenging to like put a price on this like i mean i think if you're scale? getting like
1: five newsletters at for a hundred dollars like, a year yeah, yeah i think that would be cool and i would opt into that i would get less money maybe from that subscriber but I would be happier to be part of that, the the cohort. Yeah, yeah
2: and the cohort would – would there be like a real marketing swell exactly. for all of you and you'd all rise and – I love it. I mean, it sounds like it's a magazine, to be honest. Exactly. I and mean, that's, like, basically a magazine for $100 a year magazine. Yes.
1: Which I pay for what? What I pay for Monocle, New Yorker, so Sick. much money. you're a
2: Monocle. Okay. I so am a Monocle subscriber. This is so great. Let's unpack <laughs> Monocle because, like, I, I read Monocle religiously. Andrew Tuck and Tyler Brulé, like, their newsletter writing is, like, fire. Yes. It's, like, so anti-America. <laughs>
1: I think I learn a lot from them. I learn a lot from them uh, structurally about how they approach the magazine, how they approach voice, how they are really unapologetically them, even though you could 100 percent make fun of them for how expensive and boug- bougie so much of this Tyler, magazine is. Tyler, on
2: Sundays, I would like, drink coffee and read these news on my phone every week. I'm like, this guy. <laughs> oh, I, I'm The ask is out to get him on the show.
1: Oh, I, you can, you should totally do that. But I, I, I would listen to that episode 100 percent. Like I'd be the first person clicking. But I, I think that there's so much to learn, and I subscribe to like Apartamento. Like, I love yeah. I love magazines so yeah, much, exactly. and I just put I'll throw money into it. But um, there's so much to learn from *Monocle*. I think, and how they've they've created their business.
2: It's really cool, and you are a magazine uh, veteran. You've you've worked at *New York Mag* in the golden years, really, and yeah. under Andrew Moss. And like, definitely agree that they're like anti online. They have no website for *Monocle*, which is yes. insane, and they have like this newsletter that's free. And then they s- sell their subs for, like, 125 plus a cool tote bag, which I have. Yes. I just, like—I'm glad you brought up Monocle. It's very unexpected. <laughs> but um, um, I can't let it pass. Like, we've, we've definitely uh, mentioned your book, No Meat Required, uh, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. Now, I got the PDF, like, two days ago. Yes. And I will read this so hard and have you back.
1: <laughs> well, Penguin Random House is distributing—distributes
2: yeah. Beacon It's Beacon, beacon right? Yeah. Yeah, Beacon Press. Yeah, so, so
1: hopefully so, you can get a copy.
2: I yeah, I'll get a copy. <laughs> um, I'll buy a copy, actually, because that's what you do. But um, what can you tell us about the book? Because I I, I want to have you back really, like, this this fall and talk about it. But this book seems like there's a collection of, of your work, not, like, literally a collection because it's new material, but it seems like it's, like, really, like, uh, an exclamation point of the work you've been doing and from the desk. And there's also a lot of, like, original reporting, too.
1: Well, I it's just it is a collection of my work, I think, from when I started to write about food or when I started to be a baker who ended up a food writer. Um, I think that what I learned doing like a small artisanal vegan baking business is still the most important stuff I've learned about food. Uh, It taught me about food costs. It taught me about food origins. It taught me about what organic and fair trade really mean. And it taught me, um, you know, what people are willing to pay for things. Um, it taught me how exhausting it is to stand on your feet for 14 hours a day. And so um that really still is the basis, I think, of my knowledge and experience in this in this world. And what I tried to do in the book, I think, is honor that place that mm-hmm. I come from when because for me, like alt- what I call alt- alternative food, like vegetarian, vegan food, what we now call plant-based food, um is for me, like such a significant cultural event because when I was like a young teenager growing up on Long Island, it signified to me being cool to not eat meat. And Mm -hmm. so I, which is, I guess, like, I don't know if that, that's a very normal teenage girl experience. And so- like honoring that experience, honoring the like person I was in my mid 20s who started a small vegan bakery kind of accidentally. um, And then honoring being a food writer who like made this my beat for a long time. um, I think all those three people are the people who wrote the book. Wow. (laughs) Um, Those three people that I've been, um, because it does really combine like research and interviews and um you know all the all this reading that i've done on the subject but it also combines like my experiences like the first time i ate tofu or um going to food swings with my friends and like wanting to like it but really hating it and <laughs> and like obviously the importance of the superiority burger tofu fried tofu sandwich to my oh, life yeah. um we,
2: we can't go uh, and not mention brooks exactly brooks is the best yeah <laughs> No, so it sounds like there's a lot of Alicia Kennedy in this book. And sorry for the third person. I just love doing that, um, (laughs) making you you blush. But it sounds like uh, this is not like uh, a third person, you know, focus. But there's definitely you switching to first.
1: They're super. It's a lot of me. Um, And I hope that that's okay for folks because I do think and I think I say this in like the introduction, but. It's really hard for me personally to connect to a book about food if I don't have the eye in there, like not just my eye, but the writer's eye. Like I need to know where you're coming from uh, because I need that context to understand how you relate to food.
2: The eye is so hard. We we struggle with that a lot with our assignments. I, yeah. I feel like the eye is, you know— it's a real crutch in modern writing. You just have to have the chops to, to do to the, the eye. You have and the chops.
1: And I hope I have the chops. I have an editor who once was like, you really own the eye," And I was like, that's the best thing you could say to me. Put that on
2: a shirt. That would be really fun. <laughs> um, speaking of your writing, I just, there's a couple, you were like OG taste, like you you wrote for with Anna and I, like early days, 17 and 18, and there's a story about the Great Hippie Sandwich that I'm going yes. to link to in the show notes. I love that piece. So what can you tell us about the hippie sandwich? And I know you've been doing some work around hippie food a little bit.
1: Yeah, so I get to be in a documentary about the book Hippie Food by Jonathan Kaufman. So cool. And that was a big part of why I wanted to write this piece about the hippie sandwich, which is like uh, like the hippie sandwich is a sandwich that you don't know until you see it, and then you know exactly what it is. It's like it, there's something orange, there's something green, there's sprouts, sprouts.
2: Okay, there's good. something brown, definitely sprouty. Like
1: uh, it's very sprouty. Uh, there's a lot about Anne Wigmore in my book, um, <laughs> frankly, uh, and so there. It's it's something that is just a real moment for folks. Like if you get into the hippie sandwich at any point in your life, you just have a different kind of energy. I think <laughs> a different kind of knowledge.
2: Can the bread not be soft?
1: It has to be soft. And Thank I think you. that Thank that's you. why it's such to me now. Would I want to eat that? No. Like I,
2: really, I really don't.
1: I really only like a sandwich. This is pro- I don't know if this is a terrible thing to say. <laughs> I really only like a sandwich on toasted bread Un- except a bagel.
2: OK, <laughs> okay you're like so you're an untoasted bagel, but everything else is toasted. I yes. firmly disagree. hard. <laughs> I need squish. I'm like, kombibi like the you know japanese milk bread sandwiches is like the best sandwiches but i hear you i hear i i think blts are like the best you know obviously without the bacon but i mean (laughs) but i think like toast is great in a sandwich yes um you had one more story that i wanted to bring up is the goya Doba.
1: oh that was a funny one
2: (laughs) so when you say funny now i don't think funny but i think like maybe maybe it's not your favorite piece so i bring it up because that product it resonates we'll link to that in our Friday newsletter, and it'll get like tons of clicks. And oh, cool! People still read it. But uh, what were you trying to say? What do you mean by funny? Though? Oh
1: no, it's funny because it starts out with like my parents' divorce and how. <laughs>
2: yeah, there's that. Of course. <laughs>
1: well, I'm laughing about it. Everything's fine. Owning um, the eye, baby. Owning the eye. But like my so yeah, the reason so goya adobo was always in the house, but it wasn't like a huge part of anyone's diet until my parents got divorced because my dad couldn't cook and all he knew how to do was put goya adobo on everything, um, and so then that that's when I was like, hey, what? is this how where does it come from like obviously like goya did not invent adobo of course and like i had been going to puerto rico a lot to report stories and you know i'd seen chefs doing their own mm-hmm. blends and everything yeah. and so i'm like all right like let's talk about what this really is and where it goes obviously right now it's you know we've seen iliana masonette with uh burlap and barrel like sell out completely of her she does a saltless adobo and sozon for them um, yeah, we don't
2: need to buy Goya You don't need to buy Goya. <laughs>
1: but, like, it is such an iconic, especially in the diaspora, uh, product, you know.
2: Yeah. I can't let this pass. Okay. <laughs> you were—it was you and others, and please name them by name. You organized this symposium, a food rare symposium. I believe you did it twice. I went to two of them. And I think it was, like, 2018, 2017.
1: And 2018,
2: 2019. Now— it was amazing. And like, I know you put a ton of work into it. And I just want to go back to that because it was like a real big, really big moment. Because it was like while the James Beard Awards were happening, you were like, kind of like, fuck the James Beard Awards. We're going to like have our own moment and bring a bunch of great writers together. And I learned a lot. I met people. I think it's where I met you face-to-face. It was like I wish you would do it again.
1: We're going to – we're trying.
2: Wonderful. So let's talk about this and what what inspired that because I can't let it – I need to put that on the record.
1: So me, Layla Schlack, uh, fabulous fabulous writer and editor, Emily Stevenson, who does a lot of great cookbook work. Absolutely. Sort of more behind the scenes. um, And we just decided to do something called the Food Writers Workshop where we had one day four panels – uh, on various things to try to kind of empower younger and emerging food writers um, and try and demystify, sort of de-gatekeep, I guess, uh, the industry for folks.
2: When not many people were addressing that issue in food writing. Uh,
1: yeah, it was It not was, as many, not it as was many. earlier days of these kinds of uh, conversations. And what we did was we recorded it and we also put it out as a podcast so that it would be freely available to everybody. I think the most—for the for us, like, the most significant— part of what we did other than bringing all these people together which was great and especially for like folks like you and Anna to have come and like been available uh to ki- the the kids I mean the, kids, <laughs> the the food writers who were really interested in doing this yeah. work like it was really cool because it did bring a lot of like it did bring people in the world together and people who wanted to be in the world together and like there wasn't a hierarchy or of anything.
2: Yeah. And there was a time when I think food media was still maybe olden days and there was like a lot of gatekeeping yeah. happening. And yeah.
1: Yeah. But it was, I think, because the venue, we did it at Littlefield in Brooklyn the first two times we did it. And they charged us $1,350 for the day. And the capacity was a hundred people. So we charged everybody <laughs> $13.50 for their tickets. And then we so that everyone if everyone who if we sold out, we'd pay for the day, and no one would make any money. And, and then, everyone
2: cooked, and you I think you made some—everyone well, made amazing we food, we
1: had—yeah, uh, we had a person who cooked samosas, uh, yeah. samosa shack. She's up in Kingston, New York. And we—yeah, we, yeah, we had—but we had pastries donated. I think Bianqui brought us coffee and pastries the first year. And um, yeah, so—and then anyone who could afford to give more money, there was an option for them to give a bit more. And with that, we paid for food. So, like, it was just, like, we didn't make any money off of doing it, and we didn't want to, um, but we thought that was the only way to kind of make it equitable or, you know, a lot of things in food media, a lot of awards, a lot of access cost money, and we simply wanted to say this is something you can do with $13.50. Yeah.
2: Thank you for doing it. I just want to say on the record and like, honestly, hope you can continue this or your partners can, because yeah. it was a really, and the programming too, of course, was all, was all about, and like the four panels each day, just bringing together thoughts and just like connecting with writers that we talk on Instagram and Twitter all day. Yeah. Like just having an IRL moment. That would be awesome. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we're uh, trying.
2: So you're in town to interview Tova Danovich about her book Under the Henfluence, which is like, come on, that name is, that rules. But I'd like to hear a little bit about this book because you're you're moderating this panel and I just, I thought it was really a cool concept.
1: It's really cool. So she... Was in New York for a long time, and then her and her husband decided to move to Portland, Oregon, buy a house, and start to raise chickens. And so she takes us on her personal journey, but also her grandmother had kept chickens and on a farm, and she goes to a hatchery. Uh, she goes to, you know, all these different folks who are involved in the work of backyard chickens. She goes to a conference and, like, a place where people judge show chickens. That is—
2: so such a great conceit for exactly
1: and so, so it's really cool because for me obviously you know i don't eat meat and i um think about animals in a in a way as you know we have to think about their consciousness as well and so her, uh, her book does a really great job of showing why people for the most part don't think of chickens uh, the way we think of dogs or cats um, and, or even the way we think of cows, I would guess, mm-hmm. or horses. Um, but, you know, that there's more chickens slaughtered, uh, per year for food than there are people on the planet. Um. That's a
2: staggering stat. It's wow, very wow. staggering. Wow. You think about that. You look around and like, wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: This every year.
1: Right. Ooh. And, and so she really, um, brings humanity to, uh, the, 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 the chickens. And, you know, the ones that are her pets, you kind of get to know and you kind of get to watch her journey from eating chicken occasionally to being like, I can't eat chicken because I have the, I know these
2: these, chickens. these guys
1: um so i'm coming to it from obviously the vegetarian perspective but also like it's really funny because i see chickens all the time in puerto rico and san juan like and i'm always like
2: what? you hear them too
1: yo you hear them <laughs> but i'm always like what's up with that like what's their life like and we have this park near our house where we walk our dog all the time um and there's tons and tons of wild chickens there and so you really get to see their life cycle sort of and it's interesting because I think that people who don't grow up in a rural area have no clue that chickens will like go in a tree to
2: sleep. Yeah.
1: I had no idea. I had no
2: idea until I actually <laughs> went to Puerto Rico and I saw that happening in the our place it was like right that was a like, wow. Yeah. That's so, like a squirrel.
1: I know. So it's like you're it really changes your perspective on these animals and Yeah. You really like I've seen hens like freak out at my dog cuz it got too close to the chicks and everything and like you see them like really They're families and it's really interesting to see them live this wild life and so she obviously has a different perspective as someone who's keeping chickens and i think i would probably want to be someone who maybe gets into this someday so it's it's going to be a cool conversation i think
2: yeah and then the context of like you know crispy chicken sandwiches are like the like most meme worthy fast food item in the past couple years yeah very interesting topic i'm glad that you are there to moderate i love it Alicia, we asked all guests on Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this book, what would that be?
1: I think I would, and this is funny because honestly it's probably just my next book proposal, (laughs) I would write a book where I travel to the source of my favorite ingredients and write about them from a cultural standpoint as well as an ecological standpoint. So, you know, something in the vein of Eating to Extinction by Dan Saladino meets uh the Book of Difficult Fruit by Kate Lebo, let's say.
2: Yeah. What's <laughs> I don't want to spoil the show. Give me one ingredient.
1: One ingredient? Well, that whiskey. You- Irish whiskey.
2: Oh, so I was gonna say, like are we going to <laughs> Kentucky or are we going to Ireland or are we going to Scotland? So we're going to Ireland. We're going to Ireland. Your cocktail writing is like low-key the best, by the Thank way. Thank you. What what draws you to that because it's cool that whiskey is your first choice and i think we think of you as a plant-based writer we think of you as an academic but you like write bomb cocktail right i am
1: also a drinker yes yeah
2: (laughs) drinker of alcohol yeah
1: um so i love i just love bars i love the stories of alcohol i love the culture around them i love irish toasts i love in puerto rico we have in old someone particularly where i always say it's like a town of dive bars and Obviously, these are also spaces of of problems, but yeah. these can also be spaces of such beautiful interactions. And so I love that tension as well, that something that is a vice is also something that we can look at the beauty of how it grows from the ground and is distilled and, you know, this history of alcohol and spirits as the byproducts of agricultural waste. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that it's just there's such a fascinating story there that is more than... Just the, the idea of either, uh, I want to say, connoisseurship. that yeah.
2: gets like the Bibles or yeah. the dictionaries or the encyclopedias. Yeah. There's something
1: between connoisseurship and vice where I think mm. that is where we really interact with, mm-hmm. with cocktails and with alcohol that I think is the, the
2: really rich space to talk about. Yeah, so like, like Rosie Shep's Drinking With Men, I think of that, like yeah. just culture. Like, it's great.
1: I need to reread. I've actually been thinking I need to reread that book, and I just took note of it on my bookshelf the other day. So yeah. Yeah.
2: Alicia Kennedy, wow, that was really great. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast.
1: Thank you for so much for having me.
0: Azria Key, thank you for coming on the Taste Podcast. It's great to have you.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm sorry to lead with this, but I just have to know uh, what your take is on Emily in Paris to start things off.
3: Oh, Emily in Paris. You know, honestly, I don't take it that seriously. I feel like it's more of a parody and, you know, life in Paris is not like that for anyone I know, not me, none of my friends. So, you know, Paris is just something that sells and just the same way that there's so many influ- influencers who sell Paris who don't actually live here. You know, it, they just sell the pretty bits. It's, it's just not realistic, but you know, who cares? Let them make money and people come visit Paris. So that's my kind of feeling there. So, so do you watch? I've watched Yeah. I've watched some of it. (laughs) It's a really (laughs) diplomatic answer. (laughs) I mean, who, who hasn't watched some of it to know what everyone's talking about? Yeah. I feel the same
0: way. And, And I just have to say, I learned this last night and this shows, um, why I need to do a little apology for the French pronunciations I'm about to do as we talk. But I didn't realize that it was supposed to rhyme and be Emily and Perry. And I think that clearly no Americans do because no one pronounces it that way. But it's so funny to me.
3: <laughs> and no one in Paris says Paris like, I mean, Emily, Paris. I guess, maybe, I don't know. It. I just, I mean, I watch some of it, of course, to see what everyone's talking about, or if there's like episodes and it's, you know, some, th- some things about it are funny. But you know, it's, it's, that's not life in Paris.
0: (laughs) No, it's not life in Paris. And for, for listeners who maybe don't get the connection right away, like the reason why I'm asking Asri is that she is an American in Paris and Emily in Paris, I think is just one example of this kind of extended fascination um, and love that I think people all over the world, but definitely Americans have with Paris and all of the fantasies around it. So I'm excited to talk with you about uh, maybe the non-Netflix version of of life in Paris and all of that. Yes. <laughs> um so to start, I guess I have a selfish question because I'm um hoping and dreaming of coming to Paris this summer. But uh, I'm curious to know like if you were giving me or like someone that um someone that you liked recommendations on coming to Paris, like where would you say to go? Where would you say not to go? What are your tips?
3: Um well my tips are kind of I think some like we know okay an etiquette tip I would say is you know say bonjour when you walk into any shop any cafe anywhere you go just the first thing you say is bonjour even before you ask someone for you know a question about help or what you want because that's the first thing that will tip off whoever you're talking to whether or not they're going to be nice to you or not <laughs> so, you <laughs> what- say bonjour everywhere you go um and another thing like another etiquette thing is you know even though you're visiting Paris and you're a tourist you know the people that live there, that work in the shops. You know this is their real life. So I think it's it's polite if you if you're in a shop or you're at the flea market and you want to take a picture to ask first. Like if you're at someone's stand or if you're at the market, um, I you know I even someone who lives there. I think like a couple of years ago. I realized, you know, you have to do that. Cause I, you know, I took a picture at like one of the, the Bucaniste along the Seine and that guy got so mad at me. And he was just like, I'm out here all day selling books and nobody's been buying books and it's been rough. They just show up to take pictures for the backdrop. And so I think like, if you don't want, you know, a, you know, a local to yell at you and kind of ruin your experience, just ask first before you take a photo.
0: I do not want to be yelled at. So I think that's a great, I love the etiquette tips. Keep them coming, honestly. <laughs>
3: Um, I mean, those are my two big etiquette tips really, but I would say like, you know, for stuff to do, you know, stop at lots of cafes. So, you know, while you're, that's something, you know, when I have friends that come and visit, like, don't just go to the ones that are recommended by someone. Like, you know, if you're strolling around a neighborhood and you're doing a bunch of shopping, um, you're going to see some site, you know, just pop into a cafe, have a tea, have a coffee, have a glass of wine have an orangina, just all day long, pop into cafes. And that, you know, I think that's just like a nice, like representation and feeling of what it's like to, you know, live in Paris. Um, And, you know, be a flaneur. Don't just follow a checklist of like what to do in Paris, you know, be a flaneur, you know, choose a neighborhood and stroll around, get lost a little bit, you know, just let your eye kind of pull you down a street um, that you want to check out. So I think that's another one. And always go to always go to a thrift store or flea market. You know, I feel like it's a great way to find a little souvenir that is super special that you definitely won't find anywhere else. And um, and it, you know, brings a special memory about the the place where you're in, you know.
0: Yeah, I love that. I feel like going to flea markets is one of my all time favorite activities. And the ones in Paris seem to be um, so special. I I feel like the concept of being a flaneur and walking around is Really interesting to me in Paris, because to my knowledge, the city isn't on a grid system. So I feel like you can wander a lot more. Is that true?
3: Yes, absolutely. Paris is the best place to get lost. You know, like the Marais is like this medieval little area where, you know, definitely you can get lost. You know, there's no zero grid in Paris. So, you know, you can definitely get lost in the area like the Marais and you'll just find cute shops, cute galleries, you know, um, beautiful streets, beautiful giant doors, I think that's so, being a flaneur is the best. I think it's like the absolute, like even if you're just going to say, you know, because you have a bunch of things you really absolutely want to see, great. You're going to say, look, this day, after I see this site, I'm going to wander around the neighborhood of that site. You know, like if, if that's a way for you to do it. Um, yeah. So I think, I think an, and another big tip for, for um, a tourist coming to Paris is definitely... Spend, spend a moment sitting on the Canal Saint-Martin or the Seine. Just sit there, have a picnic, or just take a bottle of wine or a soda or nothing, or just sit there with a book and just, I don't know, be in the city.
0: <laughs> we are romanticizing doing nothing. We're romanticizing getting lost. I love all of that. I'm curious, like if I wanted to go are there some neighborhoods that are like better to go window shopping and you know maybe are a little pricier and then others that are better to like actually buy things? Like what would you recommend?
3: Well, I am kind of a left bank kind of girl, but if I if I'm doing shopping whether window shopping or actual shopping, I definitely would go to Saint-Germain. There's so many great shops there whether they're like galleries or you know where you know things you cannot probably can't, you know, easily. Buy and take home, but then there's just great shops. There's Le Bon Marché over there. Um, you know, all kinds what of, kind of. I don't know what that is. What is that? Sorry, Le Bon Marché is one of the big department stores. Uh huh. Um, so it, you know, it, you know, has a bunch of different levels. It has the Grand Epicerie, so it's like a giant, um, like epicerie food shop where you can go in and you know buy food from different countries or like um, different regions. But then in the main shop, it's all the design, you know, all the designers on the main floor, um, jewelry, cosmetics, clothes, everything in the Bon Marché. It's a great store, and they have lots of pop ups coming and going. So, and that's also near Saint Germain. So that's why I just say like Saint Germain is a great area to just window shop and real shop.
0: I love that. And it's, you need it's both. Such a
3: cute neighborhood.
0: Uh huh. Uh, and on the on the flea market topic, I, I want to get some insight into, you know, what you look for and what you're like as a tastemaker. So I'm curious, like, what your most prized French flea market find is, and then maybe like a holy grail that you're still looking for. Ew,
3: that is hard. And it's like asking me to pick one of my favorite children. <laughs> um, there's so many things that I am excited to have found, but I guess if I could just name a few Mm, there was a silver ice bucket I found that had these beautiful swans for handles, like swans um, just coming out of the sides of it. I think, oh my gosh, I re- totally regret selling that wine bucket. Um, and I still can see it when I close my eyes. It was so beautiful. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. And then I also found a full 70-piece 70, 70 set of cutlery. Um, it was gold, vermeil and silver. And it was, I mean, full, I bought it like in the Loire Valley, like this little, you know, pop-up flea market that was like around a lake. And I couldn't believe it was something that I had spotted somewhere like two years prior at like an expensive flea market. And there it was like on the ground at this like pop-up flea market, a similar version. So that was, that I also sold and I regret that too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the downside of of being somebody that I guess is sourcing and selling things. How do you do you ever like decide, actually, I'm going to keep this for myself?
3: Yes, there's things I I keep for myself. I mean, there was a bar cart that I found, um, like a round bar cart, and I styled it. I photographed it. I started writing the product description and then I never posted it. You know, I also did that with a mirror a Rococo mirror that's in my room wrote the product description took the photos and never posted it so yeah there's things I definitely keep for myself that I love 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 um but you know I'm still on the hunt for uh like a Louis 15 chaise or a recamie couch it's like you know one of those like reclining beautiful couches something you can Um, like
0: faint into kind of
3: Exactly, the recamie faint couch that's exactly what I would (laughs) love for, for my room what color do you want Actually, I think I would actually just find something in wood and then reupholster it like in some pure fray fabric Mm -hmm. or schumacher.
0: This is how I know that you're a professional and that I'm not, because I feel like if I see something that isn't my color, I like don't even consider doing something else to it. But of course, that makes so much sense.
3: (laughs) No, but, you know, that's the thing about flea market finds is that you find them. And what the beauty of it is that they have a story and they have a use that, that, you know, once was a 19th century use or 18th century use. You know, that was passed down, you know, from families, but now it's yours and you can use it for whatever you want to use it for. And you can change it and add your own style and story to it and keep, you know, keep its life going.
0: Yeah, I really love that mentality. Do you have an approach when you go to a flea market? Do you do a lap before
3: you start digging or is it just kind of going by feel? I go by feel, but I've also been doing this for so long now that I can literally walk down aisles and look at um stands and know if I'm maybe gonna find something. That's like my first like unexplainable like radar. The spidey sense. Yeah. And then yeah, exactly. And then I and then I go and I know and I can immediately see that something needs to be cleaned and it's gonna be amazing. There's things that I know that you know anybody just walking around and be like, oh, that looks junky. And I know that I have clients or you know after I've cleaned something up and photographed it, like it never stays in the shop, but most people just kind of ignore it. So I've definitely like kind of sharpened my, that skill of like knowing what people want and knowing what, you know, has potential.
0: Yeah, I think that is a really underrated skill to have. That is something I'm trying to cultivate. Do you feel like there are any things you look for? Like if a stall is arranged a certain way or you see like a piece of furniture that you know is interesting or it really is just that skill that you've developed over time?
3: Yeah, I think it's just something that I've just kind of developed over time. So, you know, I have friends that always are kind of like, "How do how do you go to the flea market and come back with bags of stuff?" And I go and find one thing and I just I don't know. I've just I've sharpened a skill. And yeah. I mean, and I think it's hard to kind of say like if there's, you know, specific things that I could tell anyone because yeah, I, that's a hard that's a hard one to to answer.
0: No, honestly, I love that answer because I feel like it's enabling me that I just have to go to the flea market all of the time so that I can one day reach a semblance of your level. So now I have an excuse to go shopping, which is which is even better than knowing what color wood to look for,
3: but you know what's interesting is that French people, they all go to the flea market all the time. Like it's like I feel like in America, people go to the flea market if it's just something that they like if they like vintage things. I think that a lot of people just like, you know, they don't go if they don't like secondhand things, but here you could be you know I'm friends with a designer who makes like amazing contemporary stuff and she goes to the food market all the time you know she goes there they go there every weekend you know you draw inspiration you get ideas you know you meet people it's very it's a very social thing and through that you just even just walking around to then look and then meet a friend for a cafe you might see something
0: Yeah, I love that mentality. I grew up in Los Angeles and I have I love vintage and and all of those things. So my sister and I would go to the fleet all of the time. And I think that especially as a young person that was trying to figure out what aesthetic I even wanted to aspire to be into, like seeing all the options was really helpful. And I can imagine that being similar in terms of like decorating a home and trying to decide like what changes you want to make. Maybe you see something there and then that gives you
3: that inspiration. Yeah. And just to just to touch up on that, like what you just said is, you know, you know, taste. It's also about, you know, learning what your taste is and then refining that taste.
0: And how do you even learn that just by, just by
3: doing and looking? I mean, this is a, a controversial question, right? Cause people are kind of like, can you learn taste or not? Um, I think you can learn taste, you know, obviously like I studied history, so decorative arts. So I kind of had like a little bit of a base, You know, there's something of, there's the base of, you know, learning about different objects and time periods, but I think you could have not studied the decorative arts and just realize that you're curious about something and pick up a book or go on the internet. And then you kind of just play around and then you, that, that is sharpening your tastes. It's just, it's just like food. You know, you might buy something, you're like, oh, it doesn't work. I don't like this type of food anymore. I don't like this object, this, this style anymore. You resell it to someone else who does.
0: Definitely. And so I want to talk a little bit about your book, uh, which is called joies and joie de vivre. Tell me that was terrible. I'll say that again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Joie 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 de vivre. In your introduction, you pose what I would say is a very French existential question about the difference between joy and happiness. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of unpack that for us a little bit. What is the difference?
3: Yeah. So, you know, in my intro, I, I say, you know, I had a French friend that was like, oh, how can you write about joie when the French are not happy all the time and they gr- they're grumpy and they complain and they strife. <laughs> but uh, yes, of course I can, because, you know, happiness is a state of being, right? It's, you know, maybe you're going through a hard time or maybe, you know, the, the weather's gloomy today or maybe you have like, you know, a bunch of work piled upon you um, on your desk. But joy is really all about like small, simple, little things. You know, it's quick, it's spontaneous, it sparks curiosity, it sparks um, many things. And so joy is more like, okay, I might have this pile of stuff on my desk that I have to do, but you know what, I'm going to go meet a friend for lunch really quick outside in the park for an hour. You know, and then you kind of, in that moment, you're sitting with your friend in the park and you're talking, you're feeling joy. You know, it might be um, you go outside and you, you know, you, you're, you know, you got bad news and you're not feeling really good, but you decide to go outside and go, you know, uh, you know, pick up some groceries. But instead of going to the big grocery store where you will be alone in your thoughts of your bad news or, or whatever you're grumpy about, but you're talking to the, the formagerie guy and the, the wine or the florist. And you're kind of at, you know, they're like, Oh, how are your kids? And that, that, you know, that sense of community, that, that moment of connecting with someone will bring you joy. You know, it's like connecting with other people, talking with other people, you know, that someone's sharing, they're like, Oh, you know, here's this, this cheese. It's, and then suddenly you're like, Oh, really? They telling you something you don't know. Like I didn't know um you know, cheese is seasonal I remember just like in the line for cheese and he's telling me all about cheese and it's like oh yeah when I rode my bike around and suddenly I'm having this connection and that's joy it's just like and I leave the cheese shop just being like ah. you're like bouncing on my step and not thinking about whatever you know grumpy moment was happening or or you know so happy I feel like happy happiness is kind of just like a state of being while joy is just like you know you can always access joy
0: yeah. I like, I think joy and cheese are definitely connected, at least for me. <laughs> and what do you mean about cheese being seasonal? I don't know if I know that.
3: Yeah. Cause I, I learned this from going to my, che- you know, my cheesemonger was just like, you know, I go in there instead of, you know, if you go to the big grocery store, you're just staring at a wall of cheese. You don't learn a thing. You're just looking at all the cheeses and you just probably grab the one, you know, but you know, I went to my cheese guy and was like, Oh, I'm having some friends over. And I, you know, he's like, how many? I tell him, and he's like, okay, well, you need four different cheeses. And he tells me the different types. And I was like, well, yeah, but what about that cheese that, that I got from you last month? He goes, no, 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 it's it's not the season. It's not the season for that. I was like, cheese has a season? He goes, of course, think about it. If it's a, if it's a cow cheese, the seasons change. So there's a certain season where the goats, I'm mean, sorry, goats or cows are eating very, very green grass. You know, the sun is different. The rains are different. Um there's a season where it's really cold and the you know the plants the grass everything that they're eating is different so what they eat and the cheese that they make so that's why cheese is seasonal
0: yeah wow well, i find that to be like very beautiful like i guess um i don't know why i didn't think that that would be a flavor that you would notice um or like something that would affect like a product like cheese that is being made by the cow that's eating the grass but um of course it does <laughs>
3: yeah exactly because the seasons change he was like the seasons change of course and I was like oh yeah you're right he's like yeah so there's a season for things you know and that's, I mean just I guess you you learn that when you go and you talk to a cheesemonger or you go to the fruit and vegetable stand and they start telling you about, you know, what's in season and how to cook it. Definitely.
0: I've been interrogating the the farmer's market folks over here in Brooklyn, like wondering when the spring produce is going to come in, even though I know it's going to be at least a month just because I'm so over the root vegetables and I'm hoping that they'll give me good news.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, seasons are coming faster now.
0: Yeah, that that's true. Someday there will be asparagus year round. <laughs> I know, kind of scary. Um, so this idea about like these little luxuries is reminding me about something else that I know you've written about, which is like the case for the good China. Could you tell me like a little bit about that piece and where it
3: came from? The case for the good China comes from a blog post that I wrote that kind of grew into a bigger thing. And it's a story that I tell about my mother had this wedding China that she was given and she absolutely loved it and kept it in this, um, cabinet with, you know, glass windows and drawers protected. And, you know, you could see it as you walked by it, but she would never use it. Never, never, ever use it. She was worried it was going to get broken. Somebody was going to destroy it. Um, but she loved it. It made her so happy and it was so special to her. So I one day asked her, you know, if we could use it and, you know, she thought about it, said yes, then changed her mind. You can read the full story in the book. But the point was that my mother died and she never got to eat off at china like nothing, not a salad, not a piece of toast, nothing. So it made me kind of realize that, you know, it was something that made her so happy, but she never actually used it. And I feel like we should always use the things that we love. We should be surrounded by objects that bring us joy and we should actually use them. Like there's no, and I think like that, you know, that can also apply to, I don't know clothes you have like you have some special sweater you, or or dress you only want to wear you've only worn once because you don't want it to get ruined. You know, it's 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 honoring yourself because it brings you joy and it makes you happy, but it's also honoring the people that made it, you know, in 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 a, in another kind of context, I guess. Um, you know, my point was just like it brings you joy, so you should actually use it instead of letting it collect dust behind a cabinet as my mother did. Definitely. And have you used her china since? You know, that's like a sad little story that I, you know, after she died and my dad got remarried, it went to like different corners of the earth with, um, relatives. So no, I have not, mm. I never got to use it either. So one day I will, I will get it from some relative who took it, but no, this <laughs> is your to. like
0: John Wick origin story is you're going to travel the world and collect every piece.
3: <laughs> I know, I know I'll, I'll find it one day.
0: Yeah. I would watch that movie for what it's worth. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Parisian cafe culture, which we were mentioning a little bit earlier. I don't even know if people work on laptops in cafes in Paris, but if they do, like, were there any cafes that you worked at while you were writing this book?
3: Yes, absolutely. People do work on cafes in Paris. Um, when I moved here about 12 years ago, I would say no. Um, and then it kind of shifted, you know, people would kind of give you side eye if you did bust out a computer but then it kind of started to shift. And now there's a lot of cafes. You know, you'll see people with, there's so many remote workers, um, people with cafes, people in cafes with laptops. But you know, when it's lunchtime, you close the computer and people actually eat, which is really nice. So I think from 12 to two, you really won't find um, a computer, but I did work in a lot of, I worked at home and then I'd leave um, in the late afternoon and go work. At a cafe. So, yeah, there were a few that I frequented.
0: It's good to know that people are asking for the Wi Fi password, but not eating their salad over their laptop while they're working. There's a line that's being drawn.
3: Absolutely. And I talk about that in the book too, how important lunch is, and especially to the French.
0: Uh huh. Is there like one or two cafes that you, you want to shout out as some of your favorites um, that you like to go to?
3: A couple cafes. Um, you know, I wasn't telling too many people which cafe I was working in because I didn't want friends to come find me. But that cafe closed. It was called The Voyager. And um, she retired and sold the cafe to someone else. But I did like going in there because it was really locals and, you know, it wasn't like a tourist spot. So I kind of loved eavesdropping on the conversations of locals and the things that they talked about. And it kind of inspired what I was writing. Um, But I guess like more of like a hot spot for tours. The Namur was a great one. Like if I was in the first to kind of like sit there for a while and get lost and people watch, you know, edit photos usually because I couldn't totally concentrate um, with all the people watching going on. Um, In the 11th, also the Petite Andesis is another one, not, you know, not a touristy kind of spot, a real neighborhood spot that I like on this little triangle corner in the 11th um, and I like it because the, the people that work there you know you can tell they're like in such good spirits so you know they're happy for people to come in there and work and they don't care how long you stay and I like that I like that kind of energy
0: yeah that sounds that sounds pretty perfect um, and I appreciate that you were not telling your friends where you were because you didn't want them to come find you I think that's a really pro move
3: Yeah, because, you know, to be honest, there were some cafes in my neighbors in 11th that I would go to in the beginning. And like, and I would just see everyone or, you know, I tell a friend where I was and they'd be like, come by. And I was like, oh, I got to go find like I got to get in. I got to focus.
0: Yeah. I feel like whenever my friends ask me to co-work, I know that they just want to hang out and not actually do work. But somehow I feel like we're both lying to ourselves that work is going to happen and then it obviously never does. Um, And I wanted to ask you about what I would consider to be another key element of Parisian culture, which is Apero hour. And um, I'm curious, like, if you were hosting an Apero maybe or if you were out somewhere and you're ordering, like, what would be the essential things that you would want to have?
3: Yes. Well, you know, I have to say um, Apero is a key element of Parisian culture, but you have to know that there's Apero. Mm.
2: There's
3: Apero in "Quote," you know, quotation marks, because one is just like your proper apéro drinks and some little nibbles, and the other one isn't. They're saying it's an apéro, but you're really, it's really what we call an apéro dînatoire. I don't, I don't even know <laughs> this here. It's kind of like you invite a friend over at eight p.m. for an apéro. You know, it's a it's really an apéro dînatoire, and you have to like feed people like you know enough for dinner. Um. So,
0: so it's like snacky have, but uh, enough for dinner in the second one. Well.
3: Yes, the second one, Apurdo Noir. So if I had to say both, like the first one, Apéro, like essentials, I would just have you know really pretty bowls with just nuts and chips and you know charcuterie. Um, I like to do crudité, like crudité, you know, raw vegetables with like a beetroot hummus because I'm visual and I love the way it looks. Um, and then you know. Uh, I always go to Monoprix and buy this Tom Piquant. It's my like little secret that I've converted at least 10 people into being obsessed with. So if you're visiting Paris, walk into a Monoprix and look for some spicy tuna. Um, and it's a nice dip. So I get little pitas and baguettes and we, you just kind of nibble on those things. It's like apro needs to be as simple as possible. It's all about like just these little crunchy little things. I mean, the point of apro is like not to spoil your appetite. So if, it, if you're doing a real apro, you just need nibbly things. Mhm. And then for dinner Yeah, if you're doing an apéro dinatoire, you know, you can include all everything of what I just said, but then I would add cheese as well as the charcuterie. Um and then maybe something heavier. Like you can add like, you know, a salad or you know like a like a cold pasta dish or you know just something a little heavier so that while everyone everyone's nibbling, like you know, maybe have more charcuterie with a, like a pate as well, or maybe do all of those things and then have some oysters as well. Just like something. So we're, you know, people, it's not, it's not a real heavy meal, but it's still kind of like a nibbly sort of meal.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I
0: really appreciate that there's two different words for both of these, because I often find myself in the situation where my friend is having me over at, you know, 630 or something after work. And I have no idea how much I'm about to be fed or if I should get a slice of pizza before or after. And I'm I'm always in this state of confusion. So maybe we need to be introducing words like this in English also.
3: Yeah, I like that. So it's like apéro or aperitivis. You know, you kind of know, like, we're just going to, you know, nibble ourselves into, you know, fullness, you know and then it, you know, and enjoy ourselves and chat.
0: Yeah. Is there a Parisian version of, of like the dollar slice that you would get if you thought you were going to an apéro dînatoire and it was
3: actually just an apéro? Um, no, I wish there was. I really miss New York, New York City. I miss New York City pizza. Um, so no, I think people really just always go to an apéro dînatoire or an apéro. And, you know, and then, like you said, kind of get tricked into one that like you're, just there's not enough food and you're still hungry. Um, and then everyone just like attacks the kitchen and comes up with something together.
0: <laughs> Team building. I like that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so if you- yeah, I, I, just, I don't think that anybody would eat. Like if anyone invited you for an apero at 630, you would never eat a pizza or anything before you go there. You would just go.
0: Yeah. I, I've, I've learned to save that for the after move because you don't want to <laughs> be too full. <laughs> yeah. So if you could have like any famous Parisian expats throughout
3: history over for dinner, who would you invite? Ooh, there's so many interesting expats. Um, James Baldwin, for sure. Um, Elsa Maxwell, you know, she was that, she was this famous woman known for throwing parties. You know, she staged these amazing parties with purpose, like scavenger hunts around Paris. And um, she had this lovely saying that, people are like living decorations for a party or dinner. So I just like love everything about her personality. She had a short stint in Paris, but she was a wonderful, interesting person. But also Josephine Baker, of course, and Bricktop, Ada Bricktop Smith, who had a club in the 1920s and was friends with like every famous expat of the 20s. Um, And then yeah, Cole Porter, you can get on the piano and we can sing. I love a good show tune. Um, Julia Child, of course, she's so fabulous. Yeah, I think those are,
0: you know, MFK Fisher. Wow. This is like the dream dinner party. I just want to be a fly on the wall.
3: People that love food so we can have conversations, you know, uh, you know, James Baldwin for, you know, conversations about the state of the world and how things are going. And, you know, some really good party girls, Elsa and Bricktop. And Cole Porter to get us all singing after we've had too much wine.
0: <laughs> Ship it. I love it all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It seems that a lot of those guests are from the, the 20s kind of era. Is that one that you are particularly interested in?
3: Yes. It's absolutely one of my favorite eras of Paris, for sure. I, I'm, I'm pre-war, I'm um interwar period. Um, just, I love it. I'm definitely that's I I was what I focused on in grad school. I just find that such an interesting period of time.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. Um in so many different ways. And also just like the best part of the um the movie Midnight in Paris, I think is that whole twenties era. Also, I love that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The the you know, the roaring twenties and they call it les années folles the crazy years in in, in French.
0: And now so. we're in the crazy years of the 2020s.
3: I <laughs> know. Uh, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> In a good way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you for taking the time to speak
3: with me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
2: The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.